Say hello to the bad guy. Razor Ramon. You know who I am. But you don't know why I'm here. You want a war? You're gonna get one. My name and lights dripping in gold. Hard work pays off. Dreams come true. Bad times don't last, but bad guys do. It's main event time here at 10 Bell Pod. It's such a big deal. Huge, amazing. I I hate using adjectives. It makes me sound like Trump. And that's not what I want to do. But (laughs) I have to explain to you that this is massive recording of our headline episode, Scott Hall. We're stopping the world. We're definitely stopping the sports world because we were recording this episode. While LeBron James is taking on Steph Curry in the NBA playoffs for game two. And I hate time stamping it, but who knows? Steph Curry could score 89 points tonight. And me and Nicholas, these huge basketball fans, are missing it just so we could talk about the history of professional wrestling. Most notably, the first part of Scott Hall's career. So congratulations, uh, scheduling czar Nicholas Alexander for putting us (laughs) (laughs) on the same time that two greats of our generation are dueling battle on ESPN as we speak. Wow. Are those guys good? (laughs) This is why I hate you. You know nothing about sports and professional wrestling. In all fairness, the NBA season ended for me when the Hornets were eliminated from the playoffs. So we're talking like February or something. I was just saying, I mean, October? (laughs) I don't don't know when the season starts, but I feel like October they were done. But it's great seeing someone like Malik Monk, a former Hornet, go on in the playoffs. And that's what's amazing about being a Charlotte Hornet fan. Am I right, Nick? No. I didn't think this episode was going to be sad till the third one, but here we are. (laughs) Here we are, talking Charlotte Hornets. It's all sad. If I may take a moment to introduce the diamond-studded butt plug of Tin Bell Pot, Nick Alexander, take it away. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That that caught me off guard. All right. Hello, and welcome to... (laughs) I'm all fucking... Do you need us to do the intro? The man who oozes research machismo, <laughs> Nick Alexander. Oh, yeah, I'd never get an intro, so that's nice. That felt nice. All He's right, and, and, the tall guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a quick survey. Are you down with 10 Bell <laughs> All right, I am joined by Big Tyler Wood. Hello. And the third host over there is, is of course, Say... Hello to the main scout, Jake Manning. <laughs> That's right. We, we, we got the big man. We got the, 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 other, the small man. And you got the medium-sized man right here uh, <laughs> joining you for the headlining episode, which is a multi-parter. 
but uh, we are ready to dive into probably one of the coolest professional wrestlers and definitely underrated when it comes to intelligence and just psychology and all facets of being a performer in professional wrestling. Yes, like uh, LeBron and Steph that we are missing right now, we are talking about one of the all-time greats and also just one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. If you took an NBA forward's height, gave him a linebacker's build, gave him movie star gut looks, Snoop Dogg's coolness and swag, armed him with one of the greatest wrestling minds of all time, all-time mic skills, all-time in-ring ability, you'd get someone that wishes... They were the great Scott Hall. Say hello to the bad guy. We'll start it off like always. Jake, Tyler, what is your just initial thoughts, your exposure to Scott Hall? I'll go first so we can uh, build it from the bottom. Uh, <laughs> well, you are the little, you are the little main. I'm the medium-sized main. And then we'll have the big man kick it off. <laughs> is doing a, like a Razor Ramon impression, is that racist? <laughs> It's through the looking glass for sure, and we're definitely <laughs> going to be doing that a lot through here. We're, we're, we're treading on some very thin ground here, so we're going to push forward. I, th- I feel like we're coming out of the back end of cancel culture. Scott Hall made it, man. Like, like <laughs> no one, anytime someone was like, can't believe he was playing, there was like a million comments of like, no, fuck you. Scott's okay. <laughs> like, he, he, it's okay. It's fine. Yeah, and, and coming from you, Nick, in Los Angeles, I'm surprised that you said that it's okay and cancel culture is done. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you heard it from his lips, so let those bike locks just start throwing at your head. Like, let's start start ducking them. Where you know, you're the one that'll get canceled by doing the impersonation. Where Tyler is in North Carolina, I'm in South Carolina. We're safe. We're okay. <laughs> All right. We'll still be allowed to go into Zaxby's uh, un, uh, unassaulted and unaccosted. I fucking love Zaxby's. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's good. I almost had it today, but I had Shane's Rib Shack, so I had to get that barbecue in. I got to get that sodium up. No Bojangles love. Yeah. Uh, You're probably tired of it living in Charlotte for so long, both of you guys. When I went back home for Christmas, I ate Bojangles six times (laughs) (laughs) in like like three days. But continue on with talking to Scott Hall. <laughs> now that we've pl- plugged a company that will never sponsor us when they've clearly sponsored the shittiest arena of all time, which I'm sure Scott Hall has wrestled in, by yeah, the way, probably. to tie it all back around to Scott Hall. Talking about so the Zaxby's Forum? <laughs> yes, the Zaxby Forum. Continue on, uh, little main. So my exposure to Scott Hall, I didn't start watching until 2003, so that was even after the wrap-up of his second WWE run after the plane ride from hell. So a lot of my exposure to Scott Hall is through, like, old DVDs that I would watch of, like, you know, I had the Best of the Intercontinental Championship DVD. I had the Best of the Ladder Match DVD. Both of them featured the WrestleMania 10 Shawn Michaels match. I missed out on... NWO and WCW. I missed out on all of WCW, but heard fantastic things about his work through the NWO and just how beloved he was as a person. But sadly, I didn't come to know Scott until basically the first thing that would come out of anyone's mouth when talking about him is, oh man, I hope he gets sober. So it's been fun to to go back and like get a fuller understanding of his career and like all the great highlights of it throughout and yeah i would say i'm solidly more a fan now than when i started the research i grew up with scott hall razor ramon and then obviously scott hall just razor ramon was the coolest 
thing ever. I mean, I just, as a young wrestling fan, like, nobody was any cooler. And, I, and I've been thinking a lot about how, like, it's very hard for me because I, I went from being a fan to a pro wrestler. I did it for so many years, was on so many shows, interacted with people. Now I'm on the other side of the looking glass. And we produce a television product that goes out every week. And it doesn't register in my mind when somebody sees like a, like a Wardlow at a meet and greet and they are very excited to see him that I'm like, oh, well, that's how I would have been if I would have saw Scott Hall or somebody that equivalent. And I've never thought about it and equated it that way as I've interacted with Scott over the years. And obviously some of those interactions were not actually the best. So like... I kind of got away from the allure of it all, but he's he's definitely a guy that's influenced my career. He's influenced my fandom, and he's a lot of things that I love about professional wrestling. Like he was the person that came up with it and did it in some some facet. So yeah, huge fan, huge amount of respect as a performer as well too. And um, yeah, excited to do this episode. All right, let's get into. Scott Hall. So Scott Oliver Hall was born in St. Mary's County, Maryland on October 20th, 1958. Scott was a military brat attending high school in Munich, and he said he moved basically every year until he was 15. So kind of a hard childhood, but also kind of prepped him for pro wrestling, I guess, to be on, be on the move 24-7. Scott was also a huge wrestling fan growing up, and he remembered going to his first show at eight years old. And from there, he was just hooked. I think he was a big fan of Dusty. The first match he went to, they did like like a hair versus hair match, and Scott even like snagged a piece of the hair they cut and kept it for like years. So uh, he was just love at first sight with pro wrestling. He actually took that hair and put it underneath his nose and on his upper lip, and that was his mustache <laughs> until he shaved it off, actually. It's a little piece of wrestling history I don't think you know about, Nick. Just, just throw that in there. Interested in getting into the business, he started looking for a way in. He started prepping for it. But meanwhile, he was working at strip clubs as a bouncer. So let's get kind of sad and dark up front. At 25 years old, he was bouncing at the Dollhouse Strip Club in Orlando, Florida. And Which one? There's 15 of them. <laughs> I think they said the original. I think they said the original. Okay, all right. So, okay, now I know what you're talking about. Okay. Wanted to clarify. Jake, have you been? I'm, I'm probably. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I used to hang out with Sal Homoya. He used to run FIP and Dragon Gate and all them. And before we had smartphones where we could just look like GPS strip club, we just drove around until we saw purple neon. <laughs> It was while working here that he would end up getting into a fight. I believe it was over a girl. Uh, this guy comes at him. Scott hits him with a punch. And that's when the guy pulls out a gun. So Hall, in self-defense, he, he takes the gun and he ends up shooting the attacker in his head. Because the only person that can stop a bad guy with a gun is the bad guy with a gun. Oh, Jesus Christ. Please, please have the balls to keep that in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> please, for the love of God, don't take that out. Don't be, don't be a chicken shit. You stand by that fucking joke. <laughs> you stand by that fucking joke. It stays. Okay, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Don't be. This just sounds like an Arn Anderson promo from a couple years ago. <laughs> uh, a couple years ago? You mean last week? The man's like <laughs> finger gun killing people on television <laughs> in 2023. Okay. All right. Let's refocus. So this is obviously 
It's a very traumatic incident. Scott actually got charged with second-degree murder, but that was eventually dropped because it was in self-defense. However, the mental damage was done. He never dealt with the PTSD. This is the 80s. He's a macho guy. And this is something that's going to kind of rattle around inside of him for the rest of his life. And that was something, I guess, growing up in North Carolina, I I was taught about guns from a very early age. And I think that's something the Maguns crowd or the wannabe gangland people don't understand, that every time you pull the trigger of a gun, you live with those consequences forever. And even if it's self-defense, you don't know the weight of like killing someone. Obviously, in a life or death situation, better them than me. But not everyone's going to walk out like you're fucking Clint Eastwood and just be okay. And Scott definitely wasn't okay after this. Yeah, and I don't, he didn't intend to shoot him either. He was just going to pistol whip him and it went wrong. Well, and just like seeing a death happen in front of you, like we don't, we don't talk about the effects of that. Just that alone, like that, that messes with your wiring no matter what age it is. I mean, just the one death that I saw in front of me, I think it had formed who I am today for sure. I mean, like I'm telling people to leave bad guy gun jokes into a podcast because I'm broken inside because my wires are <laughs> mixed up cross because I saw a kid get crushed by a, a tractor. And then I went home Jeez. and watched Airplane 2 uh, in the fetal position while I was shaking in the mid-July heat. But watching Airplane 2, like, joke, 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 rewired my programming to every time that grief happens or I feel uncomfortable or terrified, I do nothing but tell jokes. So the fact that I'm afraid of public speaking actually creates the superpower of me being a stand-up comedian and wanting to make people laugh at my wrestling matches. It combats my shyness because I'm terrified to go in front of a crowd. And then once I'm out there, all I can do is just make people laugh because it is my coping mechanism for being out there. And then I go back to being normal. And that is the spin cycle that I have created because of past trauma. Kind of similar to that, Scott just kind of hit it inside and focused totally on pro wrestling. That's how he dealt with it. It will pop up later. So it was while living in Orlando, working at these nightclubs, he was getting jacked as hell. He's trying to get big enough for the business because this is a time where that's, you know, Hulk is uh, like a year away from being the man. So it's like all about size now as opposed to like, who's a good worker, brother? We're definitely shifting that direction at this point. And we talked about Chris Masters traps uh, a couple episodes ago, but goddamn, Scott Hall, back in the full 80s muff duster mustache phase, <laughs> golly, he was jacked. Scott knew that Championship Wrestling of Florida's office was somewhere in Tampa, but he didn't know where. After cultivating enough mass, around 84, he moved to Tampa, and Scott joined every single gym in town just to try to meet a pro wrestler. And shit, all I did was go to an open mic one night. Here was this asshole. <laughs> yep. On top of all that, Scott was also showing up to like every show in town, just trying to meet someone who would be like, wow, that's a big motherfucker. Come work for us, I guess. <laughs> but it was actually at a Publix grocery store that Scott ran into Barry Windham. So Scott, like I said, jacked all the way up to 290s, walks up to Barry Windham. They get to talking, and Barry's like, Scott, uh, what do you do? Assuming he's like a fucking pro football player or something. And Scott's actually like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to meet people. I'm trying to break into the business. 
I've actually been training with Hiro Matsuda. And Perry Windham goes, fuck Hiro Matsuda. Come down to the Tampa Sportatorium tomorrow at noon. And just like that, Scott Hall was in wrestling. It's that easy, kids. So Scott showed up. Waiting for him was Barry, along with Mike Rotunda, who got in and started working out with Scott. And Scott said they were bumping for him. So that's kind of a weird thing. Usually it's uh, beating the shit out of the new guy and making sure they have it. You know, they really want to get in. But they were like, no, this, this guy is going to be good. Let's bump for him. Show him the ropes. Jake, by the time you broke in, were you getting beat in? Or were you like just allowed to come like train? I think I was just allowed to come and train. Uh, I did have a bully uh, who liked to beat me up and make himself feel big. But I think like, God bless Toga Steve, told him like, hey, Earl, fucking you can't can't fuck with this kid he actually has like abilities to leave him alone but yeah there's all there's always fucking people that gotta exert their authority like oh let's chop the fucking trainee which is the stupidest fucking thing ever that'll never that'll never go away but yeah i do remember they just like all right you just train and we'll you know do it and get good at it and they they would get on me about stuff and they train me properly scott got thrown into a tag team with dan spivey and Pretty much right away, got sent over to Crockett in Charlotte, North Carolina, and they debuted as American Starship, a little bit of a ripoff off the Road Warriors, with Hall going by Starship Coyote and Spivey going by Starship Eagle. And George South famously talks about this tag team because he's like, ow, Dan Spivey, Scott Hall, best bodies in the business. What does Dusty do? He puts a bodysuit on him. Calls him American <laughs> Starship. Makes him wear bodysuits. Covers all that up. Like, I got the best body in the world. But Dusty's like, ah, nah, cover that up, kid. You're making me look bad. Ow, ow. Dumbest thing he ever did. Do we know if there's any correlation between this and uh, John Morrison, Johnny Nitro, et cetera, et cetera, his Starship? Absolutely not. I guarantee John Morrison had no idea this was even a thing. I love John Morrison. I, I don't know how much of professional wrestling history he knows mm-hmm. he knows a heck of a good workout program i know that much he's very accomplished as a video editor amazing at that yeah he's a very good video oh he's editor. uh I think was, he's got a professional i think boxing win now over uh harley from epic yeah. mail time that was a good yeah fight. He, <laughs> yeah yeah he's he's fantastic at everything but i think if you put it in a professional wrestling quiz he may fail it like interesting okay yeah so starship pain right. was not his it was not because of this Unless Michael Hayes jumped in and said, oh, man, Starship's a cool name. Starship Payne, that's cool shit, man. Scott and Dan didn't know each other. Uh, Not that you have to be best friends to be in a tag team. I was actually shocked and horrified to learn that's usually not the case. But a bigger issue is that both of them really, really wanted to be singles wrestlers. And on top of being mostly untrained and totally unexperienced... And this is where they kind of ran into a very unique problem because Crockett was the big leagues. It's nationally taped, lots of exposure. Sure, Scott and Spivey are some jack motherfuckers. Look-wise, they're ready for TV, but they're too green for a major push. But at the same time, they're too huge to be doing jobs all the time. And if they happen to go out on national TV and make an ass out of themselves, basically every wrestling fan's going to see it. So most of the work they did in Charlotte was for the grounds crew for the Charlotte Orioles, who Crockett also owned. And allegedly burned down their ballpark as an insurance scam. Oh, really? (laughs) Uh, Allegedly. Allegedly, that's the rumor, but uh, that's what I heard, and that's been the rumor for years. 
So this isn't to say they got like no matches. They'd slip into like the first or second spot of a card here and there. Mostly wedding because, you know, again, they have the look. They'd even get a few TV spots here and there. And one of those matches, they beat Black Bart and J.J. Dillon. And they did some really great promo pictures for Eddie Cheslock, which uh, High Spots bought the rights to that photo library and they were all over it. Singles, tags, wearing bodysuits with silver boots. <laughs> Since they kind of weren't doing too much, uh, Scott asked Dusty to send them over to Bob Geigel and Harley Race's territory in Kansas City. So Scott wanted to learn on like a smaller scale. And, you know, he wasn't getting any better at wrestling by rolling out tarps during a rain out. He and Dan Spivey headed to Kansas City, where Dan only stayed for a little while because he fucking hated it. But Scott was, like, ready to do this. You know, he started making $50 a night, finally being able to learn a little bit. Here, Scott would meet future Click member Shawn Michaels. He'd beat up Marty Jannetty. And he'd work with people like Rufus R. Jones, Gypsy Joe, and Bruiser Brody. During a St. Louis show, Scott met Blackjack Lanza, who would eventually bring him up to Minnesota to work for AWA and Vern Gagne. So Scott shows up north. He beats Rick Steiner, who was going by uh, Rob Recksteiner at the time. The next night, he goes Broadway with Larry Zabisco. And Larry, like, really did Larry stuff to, like, put him over. Yeah, like, he did nothing. He just stood there like Granite Man for about <laughs> 15 minutes. He also did the, like, not take his jacket off thing for another 10 before the match even started. Probably went 60 minutes and didn't lock up to the 45-minute mark, <laughs> if I don't know anything about Larry Zabisco. But uh, yeah, this is a good spot for him to end up AWA. They had obviously just lost Hulk Hogan, who got over for being a huge jacked monster with charisma. So I'm sure like dollar signs just popped into Vern's head like, oh, well, this is the new Hulk for us. And also too, like Magnum TA is kind of a big star and Crockett and looks like this. So, you know, this is kind of what an 80s wrestling superstar is supposed to look like at the top of the card. So they're thinking like, hey, if this guy's halfway decent, we may have a megastar on our hands. Scott was pretty much full-time in AWA as he settled in for a pretty long run. He's doing a good bit of singles work, and he also started tagging with Kurt Hennig. Perfect. Not only did Kurt turn into a lifelong friend, he gave him the ins and outs of the business, in the ring, backstage, and also during their tag team, he would do most of the work. Uh, so like as Scott continued to learn, Kurt would hop in there, bump like a fucking maniac, sell his ass off, then... Tag in Scott for the comeback in one, two, three. Yeah, it's probably really easy. And you got somebody who's been around wrestling since he was a child. So he's absorbed every bit of knowledge you possibly can just through osmosis and then learned it and was also fantastic at it and had a high aptitude for it. And then you have somebody who wants to learn, like Scott Hall, and is just right there sitting on the apron, just mere feet away from this guy who's absolute perfection in the ring, soaking up that knowledge. And then afterwards, they get to ride in a car together. And then Kurt's like, hey, when I tagged out, you, you went in like this and you did this move, th these series of moves. What if you do this, this, and this instead of this, this, and this? And in the beginning, you did this and this. Eh, don't do that again, but do that again. And just every night, and then they're the next town. Then Scott can make those changes immediately because it's still kind of in the territory days. So whatever you made a mistake or... Kurt told them not to do, he didn't do, and they did the things that he wanted to do. So, I mean, tagging with Kurt Hennig for probably a handful of months 
if you can't get better, you're a complete fucking moron. <laughs> and Scott is the furthest thing from that. He is genius level IQ when it comes to professional wrestling. So he was able to absorb all of the knowledge he possibly could and maximize that wonderful opportunity for him. So we, we're talking about how great it is that these guys can be on the road together and learning a lot like that. But we've also, this is something we talked about a little bit recently too, the amount that wrestlers are wrestling today. What do you feel like is the perfect mix of like, okay, we're not overworking the wrestlers, but they're also in the ring enough to build up some stability against injuries and also learn a decent amount? Oh, I feel like if you're in your 20s, is a rush lever day. I really honestly, truly believe that. And I was pretty close to that a lot of those years, especially some of those summer months with George South and those fair shows that would run for four days straight. And I'd be in a ring all there and then wrestling in Southwest Virginia on a Friday and Saturday night and then come back for an armory show Sunday night, maybe have Monday off. But then Tuesday was training. Wednesday, you know, maybe George would have a show or an armory show. And then Thursday, we're off somewhere in Pennsylvania, somewhere Friday. Maybe we get back for a Saturday afternoon, North Carolina thing. I would say five to seven days a week in your 20s. Now, obviously, as those bumps start to rack up a little bit in your 30s, I'd say like three days a week Mm -hmm. isn't bad. Four days a week is pretty good. Now I'm getting into my 40s. If I could get two weekends a month where I'm doing Friday and Saturday, like I feel like that would be very good for me. And then an occasional Wednesday. So I I would say probably like six times a month at at bare minimum. And as I, I think I said in one of our Patreon episodes or one of the last episodes, like I will probably retire not because I don't want to do it anymore. It's because I don't get bookings enough to stay in good enough ring shape and be able to absorb the punishment enough. January 18th, 86, Scott and Kurt picked up the tag team titles from Jimmy Garvin and Steve Regal. They started working a good bit of matches with the Long Riders, Bill and Scott Irwin, as they headed towards the granddaddy of them all, Russell Rock, 86. But not before Scott got to spit some straight fire on the Wrestle Rock Rumble Rap. I'm Kurt Hennig and Big Scott Hall. Tag team champs will take on them all. So bring on the long riders, those dirt ball dumbos. We'll smear those books and do the Wrestle Rock Rumble. Uh, but for the actual Wrestle Rock, Kurt and Scott beat the long riders in uh, just under 13 minutes. In May, Scott and Kurt dropped the belts to Buddy Rose and Doug Somers. And while Kurt and Scott still tagged together from time to time, Scott would break off and start winning some singles matches because Vern had big plans for Big Scott Hall. Like we said, he just recently lost Hulk, and Scott was even bigger. He had some sweeter facial hair, good charisma, and he was going to be Vern's new guy. But Scott was like, fuck that, it's cold in Minnesota, here's my notice, I'll do some jobs on the way out, but I'm moving to Florida. By 87, Hall was in the CWF. You know, Scott's a little more seasoned. He could really stand on his own. And he spent the year working with people like Kevin Sullivan, Bill Dundee, Barbarian. And he'd also take his first trip over to New Japan, where he got to work with Muda, Inoki, and Ricky Choshu. Like, I've seen tapes of him in Japan. And I think they even, like, put, like, cowboy stuff on him because it's, like, such a stereotypical American thing. (laughs) 
but he was like the crowds like were just in awe of him i think that there was a little bit of the language barrier and also too he was still pretty green like you can see like his first couple of appearances there were like ooh, like they were a little rough in the ring so i don't know if that was so much a factor of his newness to wrestling maybe more so the language barrier might have been more of the issue because i, I think he would he wasn't teaming with anybody that had been over there a whole heck of a lot and he was new. So he's like, okay, whatever you guys want to do. Okay. That involves them beating the shit out of me more because I'm the big guy and now they look good, but I don't look strong. So it was like a weird thing over there. At least that's what I remember from some of the, the new Japan stuff that I saw him on. While Scott did dip back over to the U S here and there, he mostly hung out in Japan until late 88. So now he has that Japanese style in his bag to go with everything he's learned from Harley, working with all the greats in AWA, getting some of those talks during his short time in Carolinas with Dusty. So it's all like starting to come together for Scott here. In March of 89, Scott was brought into NWA's WCW for the first of three runs with the company. So here he's still wrestling a Scott Hall. He debuted on the June 3rd edition of World Championship Wrestling in a vignette that showed Scott Gator Hall swimming and riding boats and scaring alligators. He'd get to the ring June 16th on a house show in Cleveland, Ohio, where he teamed with Randy Rose to lose a tag team title shot to the Freebirds, and Scott loved the Freebirds. He even said that NWO Wolfpack directly influenced by just wanting to be the Freebirds. That's what I fucking thought. Every time I turn on the TV set, there's them boys doing that free bird shit right there. That's fucking good shit. Didn't paint no Confederate flag on your face, though, but that's because you didn't want to draw no money. That's why. Scott would get a good bit of house show wins, but he's pretty much always losing on TV, including a loss to Great Muda, so that's, that's fun. Scott's pay-per-view debut came at the Great American Bash, The Glory Days, where he was part of the King of the Hill Battle Royal, dang it, Bobby, a match won by his former tag partner, Daniel Spivey. Without much happening during this run in WCW, Scott went back to Japan March of 1990. On that excursion to Japan, if anyone's interested, there is a video on YouTube of a tag match that Scott Hall is in. He is wrestling alongside... Punisher Dice Morgan. Jake, do you know who that is? Should I? You should. I didn't know either, so. Yeah, I, I quizzed Nick yeah, earlier. I... You'd know Dice him if you Morgan. saw him. He's ugly as shit with red hair. Oh, me and Mark Callis? You mean Mark Callis, <laughs> yes, sir. <It's> the <laughs> mm-hmm. Two of them uh, tagging against Masa Saito and Shinya Hashimoto for the IWGP tag titles. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Glad we stopped the whole show to put that in. That was very <laughs> That's good. A little, little fun right. fact, in case anybody wants a little, to. A little, yeah. little fun fact. Little fun fact. All I needed was the red hair clue, and then I, I know who you're talking about. So I felt like he did some gotcha on Jake Manning, <laughs> but she didn't. So. <laughs> yeah. Make sure you don't edit that out, Nicholas. Just like that other <laughs> joke you tried to take out. Leave this in. Let it be known. Let it be known. I'm really 50-50 on that joke, but. Well, uh, I'm 100%. I, it's a good joke. I like it. <laughs> All right. Uh, this is on YouTube then. After a good run in Japan, working with people like Bam Bam, Masa Saito, and, uh, you know, Pegasus Kid, Scott made his way to Otto Vance's Catch Wrestling in Germany, debuting as Texas Scott Hall for Catch Cup 90. 
This is around December 1990. And if cage match is correct, and you know that maybe it probably sometimes is, Scott got to wrestle a match with Owen over there. So that's kind of a cool collision of worlds. That's neat. Next up for Scott would be a tour of Puerto Rico, where he picked up the WWC Caribbean heavyweight title from Miguel Perez, March 3rd, 91, dropping it off to Super Medico, number three on uh, 420, bruh. <laughs> a couple weeks later, Scott was back in WCW, repackaged as the Diamond Stud, a gimmick that some say laid the foundation for uh, Razor Ramon. But under the guidance of DDP, Scott dyed his hair black, he grew out some stubble, and after a trip to a fateful North Carolina Waffle House, he'd start carrying a toothpick in his mouth, which is not the worst habit you can pick up at a Waffle House. And apparently, as the, as the story always goes, Scott had been calling the WWF office and Pat Patterson and just like, please give me a job, please give me a job, please give me a job. Changed up his look, signed with WCW, and Pat Patterson called him back immediately and was like, Vince loves your new look. And he's like, oh, fuck, I, I just signed. And he goes, when is your contract up? Okay, well then call us back when that happens, when that contract is over. It's just one of those remarkable things. You do one, one thing. He just changed his look. Scott was still a fantastic wrestler before he looked like the Diamond Stud. He was, he was a fantastic wrestler probably for years, and he was knocking on WWE's door time and time and time again, but he just changed his, his look to something that Vince wants to see, and that's the thing that changes his life. That's the thing, like, oh, we'll hire you on that now. And, and wrestling sometimes is just that. You, you do one move that turns into a gif that people see a million times over. Guess what? Tony Khan wants to put you on Dynamite. A move you've probably done a million times over, but this just has to be the one time that move in GIF form got 50,000 retweets as opposed to 25, like it has for the last three years. And that's just one of those happenstance things, and that's how pro wrestling is. It's, it's, it's more about the right person seeing you at the right fucking time with the right idea in their head. Can you guys break down for me the diamond stud gimmick? Like, what, what is it? He's from the diamond mine. DDP is the diamond... Uh, minor the diamond exchange uh, bro listen to me bro we're from the diamond exchange you don't understand right see you gotta be a jersey guy if i was talking to my boy john bon, bon jovi we, he would get it we'd be doing some stretching we'd be touching to this other's toes and I'd be like <laughs> the diamond exchange you get it he's the diamond stud i'm diamond dallas page bang money I got beautiful girls next to me. They work at my bar during the day. And then they come over and they manage me at wrestling at night. I pay them a little extra. They're good. I watch over Cindy. She's got a kid at home. He's a little, you know, a little slow. She needs the extra money. I give her a little bit more than some of the rest of the girls. But shh, don't tell nobody. I told Cindy, don't tell nobody. But it's very important. It's all part of the package. The diamond exchange. That's what I'm saying, bro. Do your stretches. Touch your toes. Oh, thanks, DDP. I am more <laughs> confused now. It was actually a social commentary on the unethical supply chain in the diamond mine industry and, you know, how we use slave labor, you know, it's, uh, it was kind of more what it was. Yeah, that anti-capitalist stuff, that's why it's in the mid-card. is <laughs> definitely uh, during that period of time of Dusty's booking where he was much more political than normal. <laughs> so. Before Scott got to go to WWF, he had to serve his sentence at Turner Broadcasting. This time, Scott got some TV wins, including a Clash of Champions 15 win over Tommy Rich. Scott hit the house show loop with the Z-Man before beating him at the Great American Bash. 
after that, it's just more making towns. He's facing guys like previous episode JYD, previous episode Yellow Dog, previous episode Tracy Smothers, before stopping by Tyler. The Chamber of Horrors. Oh, lordy, lordy, look what it is. <laughs> My new favorite wrestling match. Move over, John Cena versus CM Punk, Money in the Bank 2011. I have now seen The Chamber of Horrors, and... I was not granted permission to claw my own eyeballs out as I watched it, so <laughs> had to watch the whole fucking thing. Are you guys pro or anti Chamber of Horrors match? I love it, unironically. <laughs> I mean, there's some fun spots in there. The only thing, like, obviously, like, if you just take out the fact that Abdullah the Butcher is being electrocuted, the inner, the, the, inner, the inner linings of those batting helmets that you would get at minor league baseball games... <laughs> Because that's what that is. That's the lining of the, you know, you yeah, go to minor league baseball like as a kid and you could buy them at Toys R Us, you know, the St. Louis Cardinals, one of the San Diego Padres, the inside lining of those plastic batting helmets you'd have as a kid. That's what they use is to electrify fucking Abdul Butcher. Like at least get something that's made of metal. Like uh, at least that. Come on, guys. I'm glad that it wasn't even touching his head either. It's just like, you know, electricity. It can <laughs> jump different places. The fucking... Uh, lever would not stay up. <laughs> when this match comes up, I always think of that uh, line in Anchorman where they go, Brick killed a guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I would have loved it if they killed him and they carted him out and like the 20 zombies that they had out there to cart the dead man to the back, the fucking hepatitis factory, he would have been out of the ring. But for the love of God, it, it, he was dead for two minutes and then went, huh, I'm late and hauled ass to the back of the fucking arena dude it was fun though it was fun it it's it's fun. one of those things that it's like it's so crazy you gotta shit on a little bit but it's fun it is fun after halloween havoc scott tagged up with man scout's friend ricky morton he tagged up with man scout's enemy vader and he tagged up on a uk tour with man Scout's straight up boy Oz, a.k.a. Magic Mike Sight Character, a.k.a. Kevin Nash. No love for Kevin? Well, I was giving you a space for you to insert the YouTube clip where Kevin Nash puts me over for two or three minutes <laughs> on the GalaxyCon Q&A. I was uh, giving you an edit right there, like a little, little, little break, so you could put that in there. It's on YouTube. I, I've, I might have shared it, but if, if you look Kevin Nash put over the Man Scout Jake Manning, it's, it's very easily searchable. It's only got like 54 views, but that's okay. I'm not offended. It's more for me and Kevin anyways, but I was giving you a time to sneak in that audio. So no, I'll, I, I'll put it in here. Okay, I'm sure you will. Sure <laughs> well, will. that's this is the type of weird shit I like putting in episodes. Good. <laughs> Are you a little sexy? <laughs> <laughs> if he calls me that, I'll, I'll answer to it. <laughs> I mean, I'll answer to it. I mean, medium-sized cool, I'm fine with that too. All right, by, by spring of 92, Scott's WCW contract was up, and so he was headed north. Scott basically called up Mr. Perfect. He said, fuck it, give me Barry Horowitz's job. If I'm going to be an underneath guy, it may as well be in WWF. At least Barry has a trading card, which I know me and Jake appreciate. Hell yeah, it does. And boy, do I need one. And boy, do I need him to sign it. Also, too, I need to wrestle him and then recreate the, the finish to him and Chris Candido. 
If this podcast achieves everything, I hope it's that. We've been talking about that since the Candido episode, I think. Listen, if I was still at high spots, it would have already happened. Uh, uh, it, would, it would happen at WrestleCon this year. It could happen, Tony Khan. Scott crushes his tryout match. Later, flanked by Mr. Perfect, he has a meeting with Vince, who pitches him an army gimmick because, you know, uh, Scott's a military kid. And Scott says, look, if you want me to be G.I. Joe, I'll be the best G.I. Joe I can be for you. But have you ever seen Scarface? And of course, Vince hasn't seen a movie since they were called talkies in the 1920s. (laughs) No, I've lived it. (laughs) (laughs) So Hall hits him with, say hello to the bad guy. And Vince is like, oh my God, he changed into a Puerto Rican in front of my eyes. So Vince loves it. He thinks Scott's a genius, but he's really just quoting lines from the movie. They start talking names. Scott lands on Razor, but they need, uh, you know, they need a last name. So during a bathroom break, Scott goes to the bathroom. He runs into Tito Santana, and he's like, hey, what's, what's a good last name that starts with an R? He says Ramon, and boom, Razor Ramon was born. In that whole story, my favorite part is that when he went to WCW, Pat Patterson calls him up. He goes, Vince loves your look. Fast forward, he comes to the WWF. He goes, Vince wants you to look like you're in the military. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I never, I never thought about that, but yeah, that is very stupid. Like, what, Vince, you were in military school. You know what military people look like. It's not the diamond stud. Those, those little G.I. Joes, not one of them look like the diamond stud. Not a single one of them. I love that Scott had to go, hold on, let me unfuck this for you, Vince. I gotta. <laughs> <laughs> but every successful person in WWF had to unfuck something for Vince. <laughs> every one of them. They had to unfuck it. I mean, Mace the Mutilator was going to be Mankind. Ice Pick Jones was going to be Stone Cold Steve Austin. Like, every, everybody had to be like, let me unravel this for you. Let me. Let me tell you what what you need, not what you want to hear. And boom, they're successful. Where everybody else is like, yeah, sure, I'll be a Funkasaurus. You got it. (laughs) No problem. And then gone three months later. Yeah, sure, I'll wear this weird bondage helmet. No problem. Cool. I'm gone. All right. Uh, You're gone? All right, I'm back. Oh, fuck. You're back again? Do I have to put the bondage helmet on now? Ah, damn it. Are you talking about demolition or carrying cross? Yes. Cross, who is... (laughs) Who is Loki, the craziest person I've ever met in professional wrestling? No <laughs> shit. Why? He is insane. You want to know what he fucking did one time? Yeah, we can cut this. Like, go, go to town. No, no, no. We're leaving it in because this is a warning <laughs> to anybody that sees him out in fucking public. The man is a fucking psychopath. Okay. Stay the fuck away from him. At a wrestling revolver show, we always do a pre-show meet and greet. He came up to me and asked to borrow a Sharpie to sign the posters for all the people that came in for the meet and greet. Now, normally at a wrestling show, you'd lend somebody a Sharpie, and I'm like, oh, I'm not saying that fucking thing ever again. So I gave him the Sharpie, I'm like, fuck, well, I'm down one Sharpie. At the end of the night, we're all lining up to to get paid, and Cross just came out of the little room where he got paid by Sammy Callahan. He walked over to me and handed back my Sharpie, (laughs) looked me in the eye and said, thank you. That is the fucking craziest thing I've ever seen before in my entire fucking life. That is not fucking normal behavior by anybody in professional wrestling. It, it's, it sends shivers down my fucking spine just talking about it. That man is ice-chillingly fucking cold. He's a murderer. Stay away from <laughs> I don't know. I kind of want to cut it. I, that makes me... 
uneasy. <laughs> no, this is a fucking warning. Stay away okay. from him. Stay away Nick, from him. Leave it in. It's, up it's to a you, public Nick. service announcement. <laughs> I'll make a judgment call. <laughs> yeah, it is terrifying. I am scared of that man. That was terrifying. Handed it back to me, looked me in the eye, and said, thank you. <laughs> what? You borrowed this three hours ago. You, we should not know each other anymore. <laughs> Scott and Vince headed to Miami, where Scott bought a bunch of silk clothes and expensive shoes, and they filmed those famous razor vignettes. Uh, some of them are pretty cool. Some of them are pretty funny. Some of them are a wee bit problematic. But it was Vince who coached Scott to that razor cadence that say, Hello to the back guy. Like, the, the very slow cadence. Say it slower, Scott! Yeah. <laughs> Say it slower! I, I can't tell you how many times Mike Lee yelled that. Say it slower! <laughs> <laughs> like, if I, I just kind of run in and, like, I'm frantic about something, he'll be like, Say it slower! Because <laughs> <laughs> Scott Hall is his favorite all time. A little fun fact here with the Scott vignettes. He's recently, I don't even remember what it was on because uh, I don't like looking at stuff that he's on, but Carlito was giving an interview to somebody and he was talking about how people were telling him that his apple spitting gimmick was a ripoff of Razor Ramon. He's like, what are you talking about? Is that, is that a ripoff? What are you talking about? And one of the vignettes, he takes an apple and just spits it into somebody's face. And it's pretty much like a carbon copy vignette of one of Carlito's vignettes. Bruce Pritchard probably was like, oh, this this worked with Razor. Let's do it again. Or forgot that he did it with Razor and like, ah, Carlito, do this. <laughs> like, Let's do it with a real uh, Cuban. He's Puerto Rican. Ah, it's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> same thing. I guess we got to actually hire him now. We can't get a white person to play him. <laughs> I did that with an, I did that with a Native American. Or is that right, Chief J. Strongbow? <laughs> and, and some of those pictures that they did like on Miami Beach like him and his razor clothes like man nothing is cool or there's like one where he's like leaned up on a fence and there's a bunch of like kind of hotels that look like a part in Scarface and he's got like a jacket on man like he looks so cool during this time <laughs> nothing nothing will ever be as cool as that just razor in street clothes doing those WWE magazine photos awesome love it the craziest thing is that this gimmick should have fucking sucked. Like, if you take some Minnesota guy with, like, a porn stash and say, hey, go be Scarface, on paper, that's terrible. But, like, he not only pulled it off, it's, like, the coolest fucking thing humanly possible. It's like Dusty's polka dot gimmick. Like, it was supposed to be shit yeah, on paper, and, then, and when you're that good, you're gonna get it over. Just do it, yeah. All right, so Scott made his first appearance as Razor Ramon in a dark match on a wrestling challenge taping against Chris Hahn, May 18th, 1992. You know, kind of getting things lined up, getting the move set down. And then after weeks of vignettes, Razor made his official in-ring debut August 8th, 1992 on an episode of Superstars facing Paul Van Dell, who is apparently Carmella's dad. Oh, huh. <laughs> You say he gets the, the move set down. I, I'm trying to remember. Did he actually do the, the Razor's Edge in WCW? I always forget this. Like he, was he doing it back then? Yeah, I, I think he did it as Diamond Stud. He said he kind of lifted it off of Dan Spivey. Dan yeah. was doing like a, like a kind of a backbreaker and basically landed yeah. it from an angle, but then he went all the way up for what? Uh, is it like a crucifix, right? Uh, yes, a cru yeah, crucifix, uh, powerbomb. This is where... And I'm glad we're going to put it in here because it, 
right in part one. All you ever need to know about like how much of a genius Scott Hall is, you got to listen to one of his podcasts with Stone Cold Steve Austin, and he was talking about one of his earlier tryouts. I think the first one where he didn't get to wrestle with WWF, he just showed up and they they put him in the arena to watch the matches. And he's like, ah, well, I met some of the people here, but I'm not wrestling and I'm just sitting here. But he made the most of the opportunity because he had to, since he sat in the crowd, he goes, all right, well, I'm going to figure out what the fans want to see, like what really gets them to react. And he noticed that anytime somebody picked somebody up and they were up above the ropes or over somebody's head. He goes, anytime that happened, the crowd always reacted. And so he's like, hmm, if I ever do a finishing move, it has to involve with picking the guy up so he's up above, over top of the ropes, over my head. Like I ha- he has to be lifted in the air that high. So that's why when it, he came up with like the razor's edge, he's like, oh, well, this is a finish because I can pick him up that high and he's dangled suspended above and people can see it for a long period of time that this guy is up there and then he comes crashing down from that distance. But just his ability to unzip himself as a pro wrestler and go, all right, let me zoom out and see what these fans want. That ability to recognize that, understand that, collect that information, and then transfer that information into actual knowledge and then use that in the ring. That's why he's so incredible. And and just him telling that story, when I heard that, I'm like, this man is a genius. This man's incredible. He should be teaching this type of stuff to every wrestler that walks through first day of wrestling school. Having this ability to realize like, hey, instead of like, hey, this move's cool because I saw it on a, a tape and uh, or I saw this on a GIF or I saw somebody else do it and it looks cool. To sit in the crowd and watch how the crowd reacts to something and then trying to replicate that in your own moveset, that's why he's next level. That's why there's so few guys with his brilliance and genius in professional wrestling even today. And I do have confirmation he did do the Razor's Edge in the WCW run with DDP. It's known as the Diamond Death Drop. Yes, uh, that's what it is, because that's on the back of his action figure. But early 90s WCW is a hole in my mind. I've seen pictures, I've seen short clips, but it doesn't hold water in my brain, and, and they just kind of flow together. So thank you, Tyler. And so began Scott's time on that brutal WWF house show schedule. Um, he's stopping off to beat some enhancement talent on TV. And then he gets into his first big feud with the macho man, Randy Savage. Scott had been paired up with a who's who of Wrestling Hills, uh, Ric Flair and Mr. Perfect. And Jake, Scott, not a fan of the old nature boy. Hell yeah. That's why I like Scott even more. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. So Rick was also kind of beefing with Macho Man and... Scott gets kind of like tossed in the middle of that. So on September 14th episode of Primetime Wrestling that was actually filmed September 1st, Rick and WWF champ Randy Savage are having a world title match. Razor comes down with the ref's back turned. He does one of those like big hamstring punt kicks that drops Macho. He stumps him in the knee, of course, all setting up the figure four. And then Rick figure four Savage until he passes out. And uh, Rick wins the world title. 
But of course, after they had to re- go back and redo it again, if I'm not mistaken, this was the famous one where oh, yeah. they went out, they had the match, they get to the back, Vince is fucking livid, and they just make him go back out there and do it again. Yeah. So, you know, you go back out there and do it. That's not how I wanted that match. I told you guys. And that was also like, Scott talked about that was like a big eye-opener with Vince. Like how Vince just wouldn't be bullied because Scott was like, holy shit, you're, you're yelling at the nature boy Flair, <laughs> and macho man randy savage these are like two of the three biggest names of all time and you're screaming at them and you're making them do one of the most humiliating things ever this is insane this man is crazy and, and not to be trifled with so they're redoing something um, in 92 93 is that right the world title switch they had to they had to Redo so it. the curtain call killed kayfabe, right? That's why Vince was so mad. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That's exactly right. Let's not forget that and always just put all the blame on old Paul. Levesque. Yes, yes, of course. He's the, he's the main culprit. He's the one that decided to do all that. So let's put heap all the punishment on him. None of it on Sean. In a world where wrestling fans are born after 1996 or some shit. You don't remember the slogan of WCW in the late 90s? Remember the slogan, Jake? I was five. One man will be brave enough to face them. You never saw the... Jesus Christ. Starring the man scout, Jake Manning. You son of a bitch. This is why I hate you so much. And introducing Tyler Wood. (laughs) Oh, boy. With special guest, Nick Alexander. Oh, yeah, I never get an intro, so that's nice. That felt nice. Ten Bell Pod, the Patreon. Who gives a shit about Lex Luger? New World Order! New World Order! Hall and Savage start doing the house show loop together, heading towards October 92. Warrior gets in the mix as well. You see them have a couple tag matches on the house show loop. Uh, Scott is popping into superstars and Wrestling challenge, tapings to squash some enhancement talent, you know, cut a promo. And this all led to this like really cool dual promo between Savage and Razor on primetime that's on YouTube. Uh, definitely worth looking up. It's a, it's a lot of fun. There's just two of the great talkers of all time just going at it at the same time. Razor and Flair were actually scheduled to face the ultimate maniac, Savage and Warrior at Survivor Series, but Warrior was fired for taking steroids. Remember, we just talked about this on Bulldogs episode. So Mr. Perfect steps in for Warrior, and what a swing in talent. Like, a guy that could wrestle a broom stepping in for a guy that wrestles like a broom. It's... No, no, no. The, 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 the line that I always liked, because there was a matchup like this, where I said, a guy who can wrestle a broom is wrestling a guy who makes you wish you were wrestling a broom. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you who the two talents were that I said about that off, off air. <laughs> No, if I have to keep that joke in, no. <laughs> well, one of them is uh, good old Double J. He's the guy that can wrestle a broom. Oh, okay, okay. I guess yeah, that makes he's sense. The guy okay. that wrestles he's a guy wrestles a guitar. He's, every he's week. the guy that, uh, Yes, yes, exactly. He can, he's made us believe that he can actually play that fucking thing for years. <laughs> he can't play guitar? Can he not? He can't. Did you not see? Like. Wow, he's tr- he's toured with a guitar for like 40 years and he doesn't know how to play. <laughs> he doesn't know how to fucking play that thing. <laughs> Nick, not a guitar. Thousands of guitars. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's insane. 
Yeah, he can't fucking play. Did you see how cleverly they they cut away from him this this past Wednesday? When he was like supposedly strumming a guitar on Mark Briscoe's porch? Oh man, that's that's the last bit of kayfabe leaving my soul. That I, th- I thought he could play the guitar. Fucking right. no, he can't. <laughs> and Scott Hall is Cuban. There you go. <laughs> kayfabe leaving his soul. Something, something, <laughs> Cody Rhodes. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> I believe we talked about the Survivor Series match on Perfect's episode. I think it's the one that ends in a DQ. It's kind of like a disappointing end. They DQ Razor and Flair for like double teaming, jumping in the ring too much without tagging in and out. Uh, so it's it kind of is what it is. But cool match. Perfect, Razor, Flair, Macho Man all in the same match. That's, that's pretty neat. From Survivor Series, Razor's going to wrap up 1992 working house shows with Boss Man and Perfect as we head into 93 and the Royal Rumble, where he would take on world champion Bret Hart. Razor does take the loss here, but he's like already in the title scene. That's, you know, it's an amount of credibility and coolness. Yeah, that Rumble championship spot is like a funny one because, you know, obviously you're probably building towards that guy being the main event of WrestleMania. There are exceptions, of course, like. Slaughter and and Warrior, they did a title switch there. So you're not typically doing a title switch, but you're it's kind of like a safe, you know, spot for somebody like, hey, like let's let's see if this guy could be in the world title picture, or let's take somebody who's a credible competitor who's gonna have a good match who wouldn't normally be in a world title mix. Let's put him in this Royal Rumble world title mix because all the attention's on the Rumble. If this match kind of piques our interest, well, maybe we can come back to him for SummerSlam or some other place down the road for a world title run. It, it does bum me out how much, like, not necessarily all the time, but how much the Rumble main event can be a throwaway. It's act one of the WrestleMania main event, basically. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way it's always been designed. And especially now, so the, the Rumble gets a lot of the common fans or the Laps fans or the fans that, like... Mm-hmm haven't watched since last wrestlemania like it's a thing to bring everybody back in and like yeah. hey remember wrestlemania's right around the corner whoever wins the rumble match they get this opportunity at wrestlemania and then like it's the guy that's been carrying the belts in SummerSlam. so when he gets beat it's a bigger deal for the guy who just went through 29 other men or 49 other men or how many men are in it these days Scott got his first time at a WrestleMania at nine. You know, not the best WrestleMania, but uh, over in Las Vegas, he would roll up Bob Backlund to get a win in less than four minutes. Yeah, weird match. Uh, yeah, for sure. It's the weirdest thing ever. Like, I think Backlund was supposed to be a babyface. I don't know. Like, all WrestleMania nine, I feel like if you just shuffled everything around, you could have achieved the same thing story-wise but you would have got such a better match output <laughs> altogether. Yeah. Like, I think if you just would have shuffled around a couple of opponents here and there, like, you would have been like, oh, well, th- these are better matches, and this guy is still went over on this baby face, and this baby face is still hot, or we're still built- trending this guy up. Like, I-, I-, I feel like you could have just mixed it up, and it would have been an amazing card. Cause you had some really talented people there. It just, you had some... Not so talented people booked against some really talented people, or if you just kind of put the talented people together and let them do name names. Name names, Jake. Who's untalented (laughs) on the WrestleMania Nine card? I'm just saying, wouldn't it have been cool to see uh, Razor Ramon take on the Undertaker instead of Giant Gonzalez? 
So what I'm hearing you is know, you want man. Giant Gonzalez versus Bob Backlund. Yeah, I do. Well, <laughs> well don't you? <laughs> yeah. if, he's gonna, if he's gonna do his little like ah uh, baby face thing and get like beat by somebody. Like, wouldn't it be a giant? And then we we get to the point of, like, Bob Backlund is slowly starts to deteriorate, and then he snaps. Like, oh, you put me in here against giants. They're not wrestlers. You know, that could have added to the story. Or, you know, you could have had Matt Bourne versus a Razor Ramon. Like, or you took Mr. Perfect against Razor Ramon. Yeah. So. Then Razor gets into his next big feud with the 123 Kid. So, Kid had his tryout match the Monday after WrestleMania 9, earned a spot with the company, and then he'd start to do a few jobs on the still very new show, Monday Night Raw. If you watched Raw around this time, very formulaic. Big star wrestler worked against usually a much smaller, lesser known guy. So the big guy could get some TV wins without any other of the touring wrestlers having to take a loss. They used it to like build feuds, cut promos, sell some tickets to the live events. But on May 17th, 93's episode of Monday Night Raw, the kid shook the world. When the, at the time, no-named wrestler hit megastar Razor Ramon with a moonsault, hitting him with a 1-2-3, and this shook everyone so bad that even the wrestlers in the back were coming up to Scott and saying stuff like, Dude, did you fill a piss test? Are you getting fired? What the fuck happened? Because this was unheard of at the time. Yeah, and it makes it makes Kid a star. Also, too, it gets Razor to show he's not this one-dimensional dickhead. It's a win-win situation, like as far as story goes. It it enhances both men. Both men are now better out of it. You know, Kid is this super underdog. Now, all of a sudden, Razor Mona is this relatable guy. He's not like this one-dimensional bad guy who's just beating people up. And it's a sign that he's not so infatuated with himself that he's like, there's no way, no way I'm putting over the one, two, three kid. He seemed like a very selfless and giving person, like, character-wise, win-wise. I think that's probably part of the reason he never won the world title anywhere, because he didn't politic enough for it because it wasn't something that he really worried about. He knew that he was an accomplished enough wrestler, and he loved wrestling, and he didn't need the wins and the championships and need to politic for them. It just seems like a, another notch in the good guy category. Yeah, he, he said over and over in his shoot, he was like, I knew this shit was fake from day one. <laughs> so the wins and losses, I, they, they, they weren't a big deal to me. You know? he, he was always down to do what was best for business to use that phrase like he genuinely that was his like mantra his philosophy on wrestling jake can you genuinely tell me how many wrestlers you know that do not give a fuck about wins and losses oh i'm definitely one of them i mean if anything i'll i'll politic to lose mm. like, i'll get very upset like i i've done that before i've politicked i've politicked way more time to lose i think i've only like been salty about losing like twice but it was it's because I felt the promoter was trying to humiliate mm. me, and I'm not about that. Or, like, if you would have told me, like, I want you to lose to make this guy look better, I'm like, hell yeah, let's fucking do that shit under one condition, as long as it's in the middle of the ring. But I don't know. I think the really special ones, like, I think I'd like to think that Brian Danielson, mm-hmm. like, he doesn't give a fuck. He's, he's like, I, I'm just going to have an amazing match, and that's all I care about. And I think he even knows, like, the losses. Like, you can get more over if it is a good loss, and it could 
do something more creative in a loss. I think I think I think there's a lot of your your favorite and best wrestlers and wrestlers that have had two decade long careers. Like I think they understand that more than anybody else. Sometimes you can make more money on the chase too than the the payoff of something like that, right? It's it's not even that. It's just like if you're so confident in your ability, like, and I think that's kind of you know back to Scott here. I think Scott was so confident that he could put Kid over and recognize that if he does it a certain way, acknowledges the win the way he does with the shake of the hand, he could get more over. Like that when you have that much confidence in your ability, like the wins and losses mean absolutely nothing. I think the wrong wrestler here gets buried by this. It like fucks them up, but not not Scott, not Razor. Like he you can't bury Razor Ramon. <laughs> Well, if he had boo-boo face and yeah, yeah, was really yeah. like, actually mad about it and it's clearly not into it and also, too, the match wasn't good. Like, yeah. that's the thing, too. Like, if the match isn't good, then putting him over is pointless. But if yeah. the match is great and on brand and then it happens and it's done in a spectacular fashion, like, any other guy would be like, ah, oh, just roll me up, brother, and you get out and I'll get out and I'll wear, like, all black trunks and, like, you know, hide my face on the, on the hard camera. No, like Scott was out front with it and like, yeah, it was a loss, man. It was big ups to him, you know, caught me. Razor called the match a fluke and he started trying to get rematches from the kid. Obviously, this is okay. (laughs) So he offered him $2,000, $5,000, $10,000 for a rematch. And as a uh, wrestling journalist, I have to ask Tyler, would you shoot fight Bray Wyatt for $10,000? Oh, how long do I have to be in there? Uh, one of you have to walk out. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is this a Chamber of Horrors match? <laughs> yes, yes. That's the that's oh, thing. Shit. By Mountain Dew, though. So he's got to put me in a chair, and I have to shake for 30 seconds. Um, okay, will my medical expenses be covered? Okay, Let's yeah, sure. It. All right, yeah, I'll get my ass right. beat for money. Let's Twist, <laughs> you're an independent contractor. None of your medical expenses will be covered. $10.99, $10.99, $10.99. I also get a part of your uh, fee as the Oh, man, I love the the wrestling business. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) Razor stopped off at 93 King of the Ring to put Brett over again, but then he finally got his rematch with the 1-2-3 kid June 21st for the $10,000. But halfway through the match, kid sees a chance to take the money and run, literally. So he gets to the corner, grabs the bag of money, runs out of the building. (laughs) And like we kind of touched on, all this launches Xbox career. But you, you could also see that Razor is starting to turn face here. The crowd is turning him. And to help that along, they had Ted DiBiase and some of the other hills like start shit-talking him. But it was all led by Ted, who is absurdly over as a bad guy. So Razor starts firing back at him. You know, the crowd's getting more and more on Razor's side. So he's, he's basically full-blown face, leading to a match at 1993 SummerSlam which newly faced Razor won. And this is actually Ted's last match in the WWF until some like old school battle royal in 07. He was off to Japan to tag up with Kawada before getting that neck injury that actually, you know, put him out of the business altogether. Around this time, Sean was legit, maybe suspended. Depending on what clickbait article you currently have pulled up, it ranges from marky reasons to real reasons, steroid pills, Sean being a diva. Just know, motherfucker was at his house for a long time. So they vacated the Intercontinental title, which Sean currently had. October 4th, 93 episode of Monday Night Raw, they did a 20-man battle royal. 
whoever were the final two, they got to wrestle for a IC title shot the next week on Raw. So Razor and Rick Martel were those final two uh, lucky contestants. And it's just cool that one ended up being a face and one ended up being a hill. That's like real lucky, I think, for you know, story-wise. Next week on Raw, Razor pinned Martel after hitting him with the Razor's Edge to win his first Intercontinental Championship. Uh, this was all actually taped on September 27th. Art is a lie. We're actually taping this episode May 4th. Now, I see champion Razor defended the title against IRS at like a million house shows and 94's Rumble coming out on top. But meanwhile, Sean was back by late 93. He was wearing his Intercontinental title. He said Razor should not be walking around calling himself champion because Sean never lost the belt. Yeah, what is it? His smile? <laughs> the two would cut promos at each other and start working house shows, including several ladder matches that were so good, that's why it ended up being the thing at Mania. But all this led to March 20th, 1994 at WrestleMania 10 in Madison Square Garden when Razor and Sean would fuck around and have one of the greatest matches in pro wrestling history. This is an amazing match. And it's been a long time since I've seen it. I went back, and it's incredible how simple it is. I've seen, what, eight ladder matches this year, and they're all (laughs) ramping up from the last year's ladder matches. People are doing more crazy things. There are fucking 20 people involved in them. And it's amazing to see just a two-man ladder match and all the things that they were able to do with the the ladder as a, a third person in a way as a prop fucking good match well like now it's all spectacle mm-hmm. when the first ladder match like happened it was like with junkyard dog like in the in the calgary territory and brett was the one that suggested it and he actually worked a ladder match with sean so like brett was the one that introduced the idea to wwf because of there's ladder matches in the calgary territory and because there'd be like a bag of money like hanging from the ceiling and guys were fighting over it it took somebody with the genius of Scott to be like, okay, well, we got to use the ladder as a weapon. How do we position it? How do we use it? And like something that Tully Blanchard always would talk about is like, you got to understand the gimmick of the match. Like what's, what's the gimmick? And especially if you're in a gimmick match, you'd be like, well, if you're in a cage match, the big thing is the fact that you can't get out or can use parts of the cage or there's no, uh, no DQ match. Well, how does the no DQ come into play? And then tag match. Tag match is a gimmick match as well. Like, how are we building to each one of these tags? And looking at it in that simplest of form, sometimes we get lost in the spectacle of it that we forget the actual story of everything. And when you get more of the casual wrestling fan and look at something, sometimes the spectacle just goes right over their heads and they're just like, oh, okay, well, that was a cool thing. But why did that guy just, why didn't he just punch that guy or just do that to that guy? That's why. You always see the memes of people like going, why, why are they going so slow up this ladder? Like we're so far past what a ladder match is supposed to be now or, or how that whole story that these guys told at WrestleMania 10, like we're so far past it and we're so far into the spectacle that I don't think we'll ever go back to the story of the fact like we have these two belts hanging up here because one guy says he's champion. And the other guy thinks he's champion. So we're going to put both those belts up there. And whoever grabs both those belts, you're now the champion. Like, that's that's the initial story. And then how do we use this ladder to get up there? But also, too, how can we use this ladder as a weapon or an opportunity to 
heighten the stakes of the situation. You don't you don't really see that so much anymore. Every, every once in a while you'll see a ladder match, but now it's like, oh, we got to get a taller ladder and jump off it, do something cool, or especially now with guys just going, oh, well, I think this is a cool spot, and then somebody goes, quick question, when that guy does this move, how are you, you going to land safely? And they go, well, I don't know, I just think it's cool. And I'm like, well, have you not thought about how you're going to land once you take this flip and do this onto the ground? No, I just think it's cool. I'm like, okay, we go do something cool. And then they shatter shatter every bone in their in their leg. Hmm. Or somebody breaks a, a tailbone. Jake, tailbone. you have said over the years that we've been doing this that uh, you don't find wrestlers to have the most forethought of the rest of the population. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely correct. <laughs> yeah, I, I stand by that statement. Razor and Sean work just a crazy match, bumping like absolute maniacs. Razor gets the win. There's a picture of him holding both titles on the ladder. Obviously, watch this match if you have it. I assume most people have at this point. But uh, this one, Pro Wrestling Illustrated's match of the year. This was the first five-star match Dave ever gave the WWF. So this is a big, important match. Architect by two of the greats. So Razor continued to feud with uh, Sean. Also, they worked in Diesel a little bit around the house show loop. On April 30th episode of Superstars, he lost the IC title to Diesel when Sean interfered. On Monday Night Raw number 62, Razor beat Quang. Just letting you know. What season is that? What season? <laughs> well, 62. Uh, we got to be into season two by now. We got to be into season okay, two. Okay, all right. I just want to make sure. I don't know what it says on Peacock. Was that a normal title reign length for that time, like a little over a month? Back in the day, they usually held them a little longer. Yeah, I don't know why they wanted to switch it so quick. Fucking Vince. That's just, just a catch-all <laughs> answer for anything stupid. Fucking Vince. <laughs> for the 94 King of the Ring, Razor B IRS, Bam Bam, before losing in the finals to Owen Hart. And then they picked up the feud with Diesel and Sean at 94 SummerSlam with uh, Man of the Year Walter Payton in Razor's Corner. He beat Diesel for the Intercontinental to have it for his, you know, his second run. And this was all after Sean accidentally sweet chin musicked Diesel on accident. It was an accident. Razor would then start working house shows with Jeff Jarrett. Yay. Uh, they'd be on. <laughs> <laughs> you put some fucking excitement on Jeff Jarrett's yay, all right? <laughs> on this podcast, if you're on here, you better be fucking excited for Shawn Michaels and then Jeff Jarrett, all right? In that order. In that order. <laughs> Razor and Jeff would be on rival teams for 94 Survivor Series. I think we just talked about this. The bad guys versus the Teamsters, with uh, Razor being the sole survivor of that match. Jeff and Razor's feud took Scott into 1995 in the Royal Rumble, where Jeff would take Razor's Intercontinental title. Kind of some fuckery with this match. It originally ended in a countout, but Jeff wanted the belt, so he uh, got it restarted, and then small package Razor. Fuckery. These matches are so good. Like, Jeff is a classic Memphis heel, and, like, Scott is just that big baby face that everybody wants to see win, that everybody loves. Jeff is the guy that nobody fucking likes in the building. <laughs> like, it is just pro wrestling, you know, 101 in its purest form. So fun. So great. Like, if there's any match I'm going to go back and, and watch, it, it'd be like a Jeff Jarrett, like, Razor Ramon match. Of all the episodes we've done this season, I think the only match I'd really like to go back to see is maybe Jeff Jarrett versus 
Scott Hall. Like, like they, I, I forget how fun those were from time to time because I just think about the Jeff Jarrett, Shawn Michaels one. Like, that match is absolute perfection. It's one of my favorite matches of all time. But, like, some of those Razor, Jeff Jarrett matches are just so much fun. Razor faced Jarrett in a rematch for the IC title at WrestleMania 11. Razor won by DQ when Jeff's assistant, the roadie dog, Jesse James, interfered in the match, fearing that Razor was actually a Satanist lizard man controlled by the Hollywood elite to kill everyone in Tennessee, starting with Jeff. So he had to get in there and do something. It's the only responsible thing to do. Jeff held on to the title. You know, it doesn't change hands on a... Well, now does that ask a question, is Jeff Jarrett Q? Like, is, that, is, he, is, he, is Jeff Jarrett Q and he's just acting upon whatever Q wants? I don't know. I don't, I don't know how QAnon works. Razor would go on and beat Jeff and the roadie at In Your House 1 in a handicap match. Razor beat Jarrett in a ladder match at a house show May 19th, 95 to win the IC title at a house show. That made him the first ever three-time IC champion. So that was May 19th, 95. Dropped it right back May 22nd. So that was, that's Ew. weird. Why, 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 why? I mean, sometimes, the, especially like the house show business, like they're still kind of in that mode of like, you know, house show business is important. And a lot of the guys like it because if they draw a good house, your paycheck's bigger. You know, it's not so much like we're kind of getting to the ratings war as kind of, you know, like let's do angles on TV that we can run the house show loop with. And obviously you know, if you get a good house, like if you run a, run a house show and 10,000 people are there, you're like, you know what, let's reward these people. Let's give them a reason to thank them for coming, but also to let's all those other towns know like, hey, we got to show up. We might see a title switch. We got to get our tickets to Grand Rapids because they did a title switch in Detroit. Gosh, maybe they'll do something in Columbus, Ohio. There's a title match. They might switch it. They switch it in Detroit. So which is kind of to keep things interesting and keep people on their toes and to bolster a house show. As a fan that has gone to WWE house shows before, Mark, thanks. I hate hearing that <laughs> any of the matches are title matches because I'm like, oh, fuck, here we go. Like, it's going to be a screwy yeah. finish. I'd rather have a match that's just like straight up just a match because I have no clue who's going to win or lose. And when I know that it's a title match, I'm like, okay. Either they're going to retain clean, somebody's going to get disqualified. There's no way the title's yeah. changing hands at all. Yeah, but see, I've been on the other side of it where I, I think it was, somebody mentioned him earlier, John Morrison and maybe Shelton Benjamin. And I think John Morrison beat Shelton for the IC belt. And I was like, oh shit, I just saw a, a title switch. And then all of a sudden, like, I think like Teddy Long or somebody came out. <laughs> and I was like, nope, not, not happening there, player. Not happening. And, and like somebody, and like it might have been somebody was out there with Morrison and got involved. And that's how Morrison got the belt. And then they made it a three way match. And then, you know, Shelton retained and shit like that. But then it turned into an ma amazing match. And, and so, like, they, they did shit like that. And that was fun because I really believe they switched the titles, but then they. Changed I'm it. fine with some fuckery, but like with WWE, I'm so gun shy about it because I'm like, you're going to fuckery me until I leave the building. <laughs> like, I don't I don't trust anything that's going on here. Well, you do know that they don't really hate each other. Again, they're not real fights. You do know I that. I do. Time. But if you go into Top Gun 3 knowing that Tom Cruise can't die, then, you know. 
you're losing a little well, bit. Tom of... Cruise can't die because of Scientology. That's true. He's going to yeah. get his own planet. Following the Jarrett feud, Razor had a short-lived tag run with Savio Vega. They lost to men on a mission at In Your House 2, and they lost a couple times to the Raw Tag Team champs Owen and Yoko. God, him and Savio were so much fun. Like, see, now we're getting in my wheelhouse. Like, this is like, <laughs> this is right when I got DirecTV, and this whole run right here was my favorite thing in the whole world. I remember Savio filled in for Razor at the King of the Ring because Razor busted up his rib, and Savio ended up like wrestling all the way, like four matches. He wrestled the qualifier and then the three, and then got to the finals against Mabel and, and lost. But yeah, that, they always would do a thing where like Razor's hurt and Savio's got to fill in. And that's why I was like, man, that's why I love Savio, man. He's Ra- <laughs> Razor's boy. He's always looking out for him. Heading into the summer, nothing too fancy was going on for Razor. So they were like, hey, fuck it. Do the ladder thing again with Sean. <laughs> and that's what happened at uh, 95 SummerSlam. So this one, I've seen it a few times, but th- I've definitely seen it way less than the Mania match. Uh, wh- what do you think of this match? Well, they were told not to use the ladder as a weapon, yeah, yeah, which was yeah. kind of the beauty of the first one is they use it as a weapon. So now they got to get even more creative. And luckily, these guys are such artists, like the more limitations you put on them, the more art they can put into it. And I think this is where you start to see ladder matches lean more towards the spectacular. This time, Sean gets the win uh, with, you know, with Razor winning the first one. And also, too, or are we going to skip over the one, two, three kid in the crybaby match? I, I don't want to know. I don't want. I know if you don't want to embarrass your boy. Like I don't know. It's gonna be hard to go on double dates when, <laughs> when, when we got to talk about the crybaby match, where Razor Ramon beat the one two three kid and had put a diaper on him and put a, <laughs> and put, a, and put, a put a bottle in his mouth. That's really all we need to say about it. I just I just want it to be said and let it be known. That, you know, the guy you go on double dates with uh, has worn a diaper on national television. Don't don't ever forget that. So it's not the worst it, thing he did on national television. It's definitely not. It's definitely not. But let, but let it be known. Then Razor would start working with the charisma vacuum and known bitch Dean Douglas. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Coming in hot on this one. <laughs> I don't. I don't have a hard stance on Shane Douglas. I was just. I was just doing it to see what. No, Jake I was. I, I had a second there. I was like, guys, sidebar. What's what's wrong with Shane Douglas? What? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. He's incredible. Yeah, wonderful yeah, man. Yeah. And he hates Ric Flair, which is my one qualification. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just got a that's what it takes to woo you, right, Jake? <laughs> yeah. He had beef with the click, so I felt like I had to uh, take that stance. I mean, this is a click episode, so if we want to, sh- we can shit on Dean Douglas, but we can leave Shane Douglas alone. So. <laughs> okay, yeah, there we go, there we go. And and Troy Martin's fine, so like, but <laughs> Dean Douglas, fuck him, and his non charisma having ass nails on a chalkboard. Yeah, it's a good thing he did that on promos because he also did it in the ring too. So <laughs> that's, a- <laughs> oh, that's me. <laughs> uh, all right, so. Shane was known for being a great worker and is and would prove that later in ECW. But, you know, he was supposed to come in and change wrestling forever with nine star matches with Sean every night. But uh, this didn't happen. So him and the click have a legit beef, you know, so we haven't brought the click up yet. So the click, if you don't know, group of backstage pals, all top guys who kind of unionized looking out for each other's best interests. It was Hall, Nash, Pac, Sean. And later, it was Triple H when, when he came in. And they had quite the power backstage. All right, so now you know what the click is. So, 
they had this kind of system when anyone new would come in. So first you would face X-Pac and he would see if you could actually go. You know, Xbox, one of the great workers of all time. He he could judge if you're a good wrestler or not, I guess. So, oh, and that's why I'm so heartbroken that I had a bad match with him one time. <laughs> that'll always that'll always haunt me. That like on my worst day, I wrestled him. Oh, like I get the thumbs down from the click. <laughs> <laughs> Breaks my heart. And now he apologizes about it every time. You're every single time he sees you as well, probably. <laughs> All right. Uh, so if you if you made it past the Xbox step, then you got to go to Razor. And if you can't have a good run with Razor, you just you can't have a good run. Once you passed Razor, you got to go to either Diesel or Sean, depending on you know what you know who you were. What were you gonna go tackle the big man? Were you gonna work a crazy match with Sean? So Shane got stuck with Razor. Two did not like each other. So from you know Razor's point of view, I'm sure Shane has his own argument. He thought he kind of had a bad attitude. He thought he was a little overrated. It was one of those things where like, oh, you're supposed to be a big deal. Well, I am a big deal. So let's see what you can do. Also, Dean Douglas is kind of a shitty gimmick. Like your gimmick is that you can read like, well, fuck (laughs) off. It's just not a good situation for Shane. Again, moves on, becomes one of the ECW greats. A gimmick where someone can read that shit is not getting over in Jim Crockett promotions. I'll tell you that. (laughs) <laughs> well if he just would have came up with some sort of gimmick where he was playing a minority like he would have been fine it would have, it would have, it would have worked out but i th- i think there's also like a story i think sean said on his shoot it might have been against razor like because they were booked against each other a lot and he was supposed to wrestle like razor in the garden and shane's like ah, i, I kind of hurt my back and yeah poughkeepsie like sean's like but it's the fucking garden like <laughs> you fucking suck it up and work the garden. That was like the death nail in his career was saying, Hey, I'm a little beat up and I can't work the garden. Then we get to kind of a really weird thing here. So at October 95's in your house four, a beat up Sean just walks out and gives Shane the intercontinental title. So Sean had just gotten beaten up by one Marine, several Marines, still Team Six with guns. Depends on who's telling the fucking story. But uh, he got hurt and he needed some time off. He was the IC champ, had to give the belt up. Literally, literally gave it to Shane Douglas or Dean Douglas, I guess. Uh, so Razor then beats Dean for the Intercontinental title, becoming the first four-time champion in WWF history. So Razor and his Intercontinental Championship would take us into 96. And here's where we're going to start seeing the Attitude Era kind of like come out in spurts. And, you know, you just wish Razor would have stayed through uh, 98 because Vince for sure would have let his version of Scarface do cocaine on air. Like 100% that would have happened. But things are about to get uh, a little bit weird for Scott. In early 96, Razor would feud with newcomer gold dust leading to an ic title match at uh 96 royal rumble razor lost his ic title to gold dust when one two three kid was it was healing it up and attacked him so scott had some regrettable uh, opinions and some regrettable things to say about the gold dust character you know gold dust was a lot for some of the old school guys and, you know, I would say that Hall, especially since he stayed friends with X-Pac and Nash, I'd imagine he became a little more informed and, and open-minded. But either way, Razor would not have to face Gold Dust very long. Uh, around this time, early 96, just a little bit of a sidebar, a little fun 
fun excursion if anybody was interested. Uh, Hall did appear on the Jerry Springer show, January 17th, <laughs> R. I. P. 1996. Uh, oh, RIP for several reasons, Nick. He was on an episode with children with AIDS. <laughs> oh, God. That's not what I meant. I meant Jerry. <laughs> Leave that joke in, too. Leave that joke in, too. Nicholas is crushing it more than he ever has on stage in the last 10 years. Leave all these jokes in. Oh, Jesus Christ. And uh, he gave one of the kids uh, one of his intercontinental titles. He goes, it's okay, I'll win another one. This one's for you. And uh... <laughs> But yeah, that Goldust stuff was so... I mean... As a kid growing up in Iowa, and this being one of my first interactions with gay people, uh, like, thankfully I, I had seen a Murphy Brown episode that, that tackled gay people, and there was also like a Carol Burnett sketch show, I believe, in the early 90s that talked about uh, trans people, so like, at least I'd had some other exposure other than, here's gold dust, saying, <laughs> let me give a mouth to mouth, and I've got a heart tattooed on my chest. I mean, Vince, it definitely is, does not stand the test of time for sure. They're going way the fuck out the box. Yeah, this is what a gay person's like, right? My trusted advisor, (laughs) Pat Patterson. (laughs) Uh, So much, so much. I'm not going to (laughs) say. Nor should you. Nor should you. You've said two bad jokes already on the show. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. So, like I said, uh, Razor wasn't going to work with Gold Dust uh, for too long. Razor was originally scheduled to face Gold Dust in a rematch for the IC title at WrestleMania 12 in a Miami Street fight, but Hall was suspended for six weeks by the WWF for failing a drug test, and you know the match got changed to the Hollywood Street fight with Piper. This felt drug test is is pointed at least in you know what what Scott thinks because. He had given WWF his notice, and they were mad. So, you know, we just went through 95% of Scott's WWF career. You know, it's up, 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 and then it's kind of flat. But, you know, Scott did always have the pin me, pay me mentality. You know, he didn't need to be the top guy. He didn't mind doing jobs, but he knew his worth, which is always a dangerous thing in show business. You know, Scott was over as fuck, so he wanted more money, and he pitched this to old Scrooge McDuck, and he said no. So he's like, fine, fine, fine. Don't give me more money. Just uh, give me a bigger cut of my merch sales. The McMahon family's not going to notice this, but the Hall family sure as hell will. Vince said no. So he's like, fine. Let me have four weeks, six weeks. Let me go to Japan. I'll get those massive Japan paydays. Won't even be your money. Vince said no. So at the time, X-Pac was talking to WCW, put some feelers out over there. And when he told Scott the numbers that old Teddy was tossing around in Georgia, he was like, I am interested. WCW was willing to give him guaranteed money and more days off, something that Vince would never do. So Scott signs a letter of intent with Atlanta and gives WWF his 90-day notice. And that's when he gets the piss test, and it was like a whole thing where like, they kind of like dicked him over at a live show. He was like in the locker room and whole thing. How did they, did they dig him uh, over by like drugging him or like, did they just like, they probably knew he was on some shit and they're like, we're going to piss test you now to fuck you. That was basically it. He's like, dude, if I failed a piss test this week, I also failed one the last Mm -hmm. time I took. So did this guy, so did that guy, so did this guy. So for you to bring it up now, it's pointed. So 
not able to come to terms. Razor does some jobs on his way out the door as he, you know, he's guy of the business, felt that was the right thing to do. No complaints. One of those jobs was at uh, April 96 In Your House 7, where he lost to Vader. It's a real weird match, too. Like, as a fan you who's not paying attention to the dirt sheets or Mark stuff or the internet or anything, you feel something's weird going on because Razor was such a big star. He was featured all the time, and now he's just booked against Vader, losing to Vader, and then he's gone again. That whole time was just real weird and very sporadic appearances. And gosh, like I've I've had those same conversations with an employer where I'm like, hey, I'm looking to make more money. Why don't I get a bigger cut of this? Or why don't I get this? This isn't your money. And them just being like, ha, sorry, pal, that's not for you. Uh, that's all for me. I know those frustrating conversations. And you try and be reasonable as possible. You try to explain to them, like, this isn't money that's going to be coming out of your pocket. This is money over here that comes in. I just get a little bit more of it. And you're not willing to do that. Then kind of leave me with no other option. And... Yeah, you you look at the dates of WCW. It's it's you have to. We'd be talking about Scott Hall being the dumbest professional wrestler of all time if he doesn't take the WCW deal. Jake, fuck off. Nobody wants to work anymore. That's the problem. Okay, nobody wants to work. <laughs> it's not that they this livable wage shit. Oh, should be thankful you have a job. Uh, do you guys think there's any level to him on his way out being paired up with Vader because Vader beats the shit out of people? Scott Hall's not a guy Vader's going to take liberties with, because Scott Hall's going to pop his ass right back in the face. Once again, Scott Hall murdered a man. <laughs> <laughs> with, like, we started the episode in this timeline uh, that, that Nicholas said, it said, Scott Oliver Hall was born in St. Mary's <laughs> County, Maryland. The next thing in the timeline, strip club shooting. <laughs> you think... Anybody that has a fucking timeline in 10 Bell history, you think that that's going to be somebody who's going to be fucked with by Vader? <laughs> a bully? Absolutely fucking not. Yeah, so I'm glad we agree on that. <laughs> also on the way out, Razor did a string of losses for Triple H, which, you know, they're pals. But the last one he did ended at a show at Madison Square Garden, May 19th, 1996, in what is now known as the Curtain Call, when the members of the clique, some faces, some hills, went out to the ring and did a little hug, therefore killing the New York City town forever, still hasn't been a show there, destroying pro wrestling forever. This is my 9-11, and I say that as someone whose 9-11 is 9-11. Yep, kill the whole New York territory. Nobody could draw 20,000 people at a tennis stadium, even if they tried twice. Yeah, it is so bad. New York is a, it is a, it is a wasteland that's only accurately depicted in Frank Miller's Watchmen. Um, that's, that's the only way to really depict the territory is... Is, is just nobody wants to go to New York whatsoever. Like, you could drop a psychic squid in New York and murder millions of people. That's the only way that this could have gone. Jake, worse. I already did eight minutes ago. <laughs> Two things here. I want to say, Tyler, as someone who... You basically just weren't part of the kayfabe era at, 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 Not a bit at all. What did you think of, like, the curtain call and hearing, like, the big controversy over it? And then Jake, as someone who... 
I went and saw you at a show where at the end of it at a bar wrestling where the guy was going to, I think it was AEW, and all the faces and hills were in the ring hugging each other. So wrestling's changed that much. Like, what do you guys think of this? So I had the complete benefit of, I don't know if hindsight's the right word because I wasn't around for it the first time. I don't know if hindsight works that way. But I had, you know, the internet completely lay out every facet of it. Like, I'm pretty sure handful of years after I started watching wrestling, there was a Wikipedia entry on the curtain call incident and laid out in pretty factual terms. At first, I was like, oh, that kind of makes sense that, you know, they can't punish the guys going out. Okay. It was it was never really like, oh, I thought they killed the, the business because this is after the steroid trial anyway. And that's like, shit was gone anyway. I think I already knew Vince McMahon was a crazy old asshole. So like... <laughs> hearing this i'm like it's it's vince deciding that he's been fucked over he's not going to you know punish sean because sean's a huge money draw and uh triple h got fucked over in it and it's just like i was never surprised by it because uh, you know to think there's any rhyme or reason to anything wwe has done in the last 20 or 30 years is is asking a lot oh see i'll even pause it and take it a, a step further on this, I don't even think Vince was mad at all because, as legend goes, Shawn Michael asked Vince to do it, and he sure whatever and d- didn't care because it wasn't a big deal for Vince. Because Vince, like, yeah, sure, I was on TV telling people this shit was fake. I think where the problem was is like the old heads, like maybe like the Strongbows, the Lanzas, some of the more old school guys, maybe like an Undertaker, maybe even Kama or somebody else that was there got pissed off about it and got enough guys pissed off about it. And like wrestling locker rooms are like high school. So you get all these clicks together and like, can you see what they did? Okay. Cause that's what you always hear about this is everybody in the back was pissed off about it. And it was the guys, but you never hear Vince said, I'm really pissed off about this. I think what happened was all these people were pissed off about it. Cause they were pissed off of the click. And then they felt that this was a big fuck you by the click. So they're like, fuck the click. They went to bitch Vince about it, and Vince is like, well, I guess I got to fucking do something about this. I don't really give a fuck, but just to keep this locker room fucking happy, I got to fucking Paul, you're you're <laughs> to you're blame. It's your fucking problem. There you go. I can't do anything strong because I got to go make some fucking money. I don't give a fuck. I was just on TV a few months ago saying all this shit was fake. I don't give a fuck, but if it makes these high schoolers happy, fine. I don't give a shit. Like, I really feel like that's the whole thing of the curtain call. It's just, as I know, wrestling locker rooms and how political they can be. And I've seen it happen before where something happens and go, oh, this isn't a big deal. But then everybody makes a big deal out of it the next day. And then the internet makes a big deal out of it the next day. And then all of a sudden, he's like, okay, we have to put a big email together and say this was a big deal. And we should. Okay, do this we got to suspend Eddie Kingston for a little bit. We got to. <laughs> Following his WWF departure, Scott headed to WCW, where he would start quite possibly the greatest wrestling angle in pro wrestling history, and that is where we will pick back up on Scott Hall Part 2. See, I never know how to end these things. Come say hi on social media. Thanks for listening to the episode. Uh, thanks, everyone, for checking out the Patreon. Again, uh, I've, I got it nice and organized for you. If you want some bonus episodes, there's basically two and a half, three whole other seasons of Tim Bell Pod over at the at the Patreon. Jake, Tyler, you got anything before we get For sure. Hit up that Patreon. Uh, let us know what you want to see, what extra content you think would be cool. We're down for just about anything. 
5k patreon members uh jake is going to wear a rikishi thong and smush his ass into my face hell yeah <laughs> uh yeah guys thanks for watching we really appreciate it and uh thanks for listening tyler thanks for listening <laughs> what did i say thanks for watching he says watch <laughs> oh, yeah. every God, time God. every episode he said like thanks for watching hey guys well thanks thank for being you. here <laughs> there we go thanks for listening leave a review it helps out the show tremendously and we greatly yes. appreciate it all right we will see you next week for more of our main event on the great scott hall uh sorry let me text my mom back i'm sorry <laughs> you called me a mark <laughs> <laughs>